Chapter 43 Continued Resurrected One, I want to know more about the karma which forces souls to return to the three worlds. I could listen forever, I thought, to my omniscient master. Never in his earth life had I been able at one time to assimilate so much of his wisdom. Now, for the first time, I was receiving a clear, definite insight into the enigmatic interspaces on the checkerboard of life and death. The physical karma or desires of man must be completely worked out before his continued stay in astral worlds becomes possible, my guru elucidated in his thrilling voice. Two kinds of beings live in the astral spheres. Those who still have earthly karma to dispose of and who must therefore re-inhabit a gross physical body in order to pay their karmic debts could be classified after physical death as temporary visitors to the astral world rather than as established residents. Beings with unredeemed earthly karma are not permitted after astral death to go to the high causal sphere of cosmic ideas, but must shuttle to and fro from the physical and astral worlds only, conscious successively of their physical body of sixteen gross elements and of their astral body of nineteen subtle elements. After each loss of his physical body, however, an undeveloped being from the earth remains for the most part in the deep stupor of death sleep and is hardly conscious of the beautiful astral sphere. After the astral rest, such a man returns to the material plane for further lessons, gradually accustoming himself through repeated journeys to the worlds of subtle astral texture. Normal or long-established residents of the astral universe, on the other hand, are those who, freed forever from all material longings, need return no more to the gross vibrations of earth. Such beings have only astral and causal karma to work out. At astral death, these beings pass to the infinitely finer and more delicate causal world. At the end of a certain span, determined by cosmic law, these advanced beings then return to Hiranyaloka or a similar high astral planet, reborn in a new astral body to work out their unredeemed astral karma. My son, you may now comprehend more fully that I am resurrected by divine decree, Sri Yukteswar continued, as a saviour of astrally reincarnating souls coming back from the causal sphere, in particular, rather than of those astral beings who are coming up from the earth. Those from the earth, if they still retain vestiges of material karma, do not rise to the very high astral planets like Hiranyaloka. Just as most people on earth have not learnt through meditation-acquired vision to appreciate the superior joys and advantages of astral life and thus, after death, desire to return to the limited, imperfect pleasures of earth, so many astral beings, during the normal disintegration of their astral bodies, fail to picture the advanced state of spiritual joy in the causal world, and dwelling on thoughts of the more gross and gaudy astral happiness, yearn to revisit the astral paradise. Heavy astral karma must be redeemed by such beings before they can achieve after astral death an unbroken stay in the causal thought world, so thinly partitioned from the Creator. Only when a being has no further desires for experiences in the pleasing-to-the-eye astral cosmos and cannot be tempted to go back there, 
does he remain in the causal world, completing there the work of redeeming all causal karma or seeds of past desires, the confined soul thrusts out the last of the three corks of ignorance and, emerging from the final jar of the causal body, commingles with the eternal. Now do you understand? Master smiled so enchantingly. Yes, through your grace, I am speechless with joy and gratitude. Never from song or story had I ever received such inspiring knowledge. Though the Hindu scriptures refer to the causal and astral worlds and to man's three bodies, how remote and meaningless those pages compared with the warm authenticity of my resurrected master. For him, indeed, existed not a single undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns. The interpenetration of man's three bodies is expressed in many ways through his threefold nature, my great guru went on. In the wakeful state on earth, a human being is conscious more or less of his three vehicles. When he is sensuously intent on tasting, smelling, touching, listening or seeing, he is working principally through his physical body. Visualizing or willing, he is working mainly through his astral body. His causal being finds expression when man is thinking or diving deep in introspection or meditation. The cosmical thoughts of genius come to the man who habitually contacts his causal body. In this sense, an individual may be classified broadly as a material man, an energetic man, or an intellectual man. A man identifies himself about 16 hours daily with his physical vehicle. Then he sleeps. If he dreams, he remains in his astral body, effortlessly creating any object, even as do the astral beings. If man's sleep be deep and dreamless, for several hours he is able to transfer his consciousness or sense of I-ness to the causal body. Such sleep is revivifying. A dreamer is contacting his astral and not his causal body. His sleep is not fully refreshing. I had been lovingly observing Sri Yukteswar while he gave his wondrous exposition. Angelic Guru, I said, your body looks exactly as it did when I last wept over it in the Puri ashram. Oh yes, my new body is a perfect copy of the old one. I materialize or dematerialize this form any time at will, much more frequently than I did while on earth. By quick dematerialization, I now travel instantly by light express from planet to planet or indeed from astral to causal or to physical cosmos. My divine Guru smiled. Though you move about so fast these days, I had no difficulty in finding you at Bombay. O oh, Master, I was grieving so deeply about your death. Ah, wherein did I die? Isn't there some contradiction? Sri Yukteswar's eyes were twinkling with love and amusement. You were only dreaming on earth. On that earth, you saw my dream body, he went on. Later you buried that dream image. Now my finer, fleshly body, which you behold and are even now embracing rather closely, is resurrected on another, finer dream planet of God. Some day that finer dream body and finer dream planet will pass away. They too are not forever. 
all dream bubbles must eventually burst at a final wakeful touch. Differentiate, my son Yogananda, between dreams and reality. This idea of Vedantic resurrection struck me with wonder. I was ashamed that I had pitied Master when I had seen his lifeless body at Puri. I comprehended at last that my Guru had always been fully awake in God, perceiving his own life and passing on earth, and his present resurrection as nothing more than relativities of divine ideas in the cosmic dream. I have now told you, Yogananda, the truths of my life, death and resurrection. Grieve not for me, rather broadcast everywhere the story of my resurrection from the God-dreamed earth of men to another God-dreamed planet of astrally garbed souls. New hope will be infused into the hearts of misery-mad, death-fearing dreamers of the world. Yes, Master, how willingly would I share with others my joy at his resurrection. On earth my standards were uncomfortably high, unsuited to the natures of most men. Often I scolded you more than I should have. You passed my tests. Your love shone through the clouds of all reprimands. He added tenderly, I have also come today to tell you. Never again shall I wear the stern gaze of censure. I shall scold you no more. How much I had missed the chastisements of my great guru. Each one had been a guardian angel of protection. Dearest master, rebuke me a million times. Do scold me now. I shall chide you no more. His divine voice was grave, yet with an undercurrent of laughter. You and I shall smile together, so long as our two forms appear different in the Maya dream of God. Finally, we shall merge as one in the cosmic beloved. Our smiles shall be his smile, our unified song of joy vibrating throughout eternity to be broadcast to God-tuned souls. Sri Yukteswar gave me light on certain matters which I cannot reveal here. During the two hours that he spent with me in the Bombay hotel room, he answered my every question. A number of world prophecies uttered by him that June day in 1936 have already come to pass. I leave you now, beloved one. At these words, I felt Master melting away within my encircling arms. My child, his voice rang out, vibrating into my very soul firmament. Whenever you enter the door of Nirbikalpa Samadhi and call on me, I shall come to you in flesh and blood, even as today. With this celestial promise, Sri Yukteswar vanished from my sight. A cloud voice repeated in musical thunder, Tell all, Whosoever knows by Nirbikalpa realization that your earth is a dream of God can come to the finer dream-created planet of Hiranya Loka and there find me resurrected in a body exactly like my earthly one. Yogananda, tell all. Gone was the sorrow of parting, the pity and grief for his death, long robber of my peace, now fled in stark shame. Bliss poured forth like a fountain through endless, newly opened soul pores. Anciently clogged with disuse, they now widened in purity 
at the driving flood of ecstasy. My former incarnations appeared before my inward eye in motion-picture-like sequence. Good and bad karma of the past was dissolved in the cosmic light shed around me by Master's divine visit. In this chapter of my autobiography, I have obeyed my Guru's behest and spread the glad tidings, though they confound once more an incurious generation. Groveling, man knows well. Despair is seldom alien. Yet these are perversities, no part of man's true lot. The day he wills, he is set on the path to freedom. Too long has he hearkened to the dank pessimism of his dust-thou-art counsellors, heedless of the unconquerable soul. I was not the only one privileged to behold the resurrected Guru. One of Sri Yukteswar's chelas was an aged woman, affectionately known as Ma, mother, whose home was close to the Puri Hermitage. Master had often stopped to chat with her during his morning walk. On the evening of March the 16th, 1936, Ma arrived at the ashram and asked to see her guru. Why Master died a week ago? Swami Sabananda, now in charge of the Puri Hermitage, looked at her sadly. That's impossible, she protested with a smile. No, Sibananda recounted details of the burial. Come, he said, I will take you to the front garden to his grave. Ma shook her head. There is no grave for him. This morning, at ten o'clock, he passed in his usual walk before my door. I talked to him for several minutes in the bright outdoors. Come this evening to the ashram, he said. I am here. Blessings pour on this old grey head. The deathless guru wanted me to understand in what transcendent body he visited me this morning. The astounded Sebananda knelt before her. Ma, he said, what a weight of grief you lift from my heart. He is risen. Chapter 44 with Mahatma Gandhi at Warda. Welcome to Warda. Madhav Desai, secretary to Mahatma Gandhi, greeted Miss Bletch, Mr. Wright, and me with these cordial words and the gifts of wreaths of Kadar, homespun cotton. Our little group had just arrived at the station in Warda on an early morning in August, glad to leave the dust and heat of the train. Consigning our luggage to a bullock cart, we entered an open motor-car with Mr. Desai and his companions, Baba Sahib Deshmukh and Dr. Pingali. A short drive over the muddy country roads brought us to Maganwadi, the ashram of India's political saint. Mr. Desai led us at once to the writing-room, where, cross-legged, sat Mahatma Gandhi, pen in one hand and a scrap of paper in the other. On his face, a vast, winning, warm-hearted smile. Welcome, he scribbled in Hindi. It was a Monday, his weekly day of silence. Though this was our first meeting, we beamed on each other affectionately. In 1925, Mahatma Gandhi had honoured the Ranchi school by a visit, and had inscribed in its guest book a gracious tribute. The tiny 100-pound saint radiated physical mental and spiritual health. 
His soft brown eyes shone with intelligence, sincerity, and discrimination. This statesman has matched wits and emerged the victor in a thousand legal, social, and political battles. No other leader in the world has attained the secure niche in the hearts of his people that Gandhi occupies for India's unlettered millions. Their spontaneous tribute is his famous title, Mahatma, Great Soul. For them alone, Gandhi confines his attire to the widely cartooned loincloth, symbol of his oneness with the downtrodden masses who can afford no more. The ashram residents are wholly at your disposal. Please call on them for any service. With characteristic courtesy, the Mahatma handed me this hastily written note as Mr. Desai led our party from the writing room toward the guest house. Our guide led us through orchards and flowering fields to a tiled roof building with latticed windows. A front yard well, twenty-five feet across, was used, Mr. Desai said, for watering stock. Nearby stood a revolving cement wheel for threshing rice. Each of our small bedrooms proved to contain only the irreducible minimum, a bed handmade of rope. The whitewashed kitchen boasted a faucet in one corner and a fire pit for cooking in the other. Simple Arcadian sounds reached our ears. The cries of crows and sparrows, the lowing of cattle, and the rap of chisels being used to chip stones. Observing Mr. Wright's travel diary, Mr. Desai opened it and wrote on a page a list of Satyagraha vows taken by all of the Mahatma's earnest followers, Satyagrahis. Non-violence, truth, non-stealing, celibacy, non-possession, body labour, control of the palate, fearlessness, equal respect for all religions, swadeshi, use of home manufactures, freedom from untouchability. These eleven should be observed as vows in a spirit of humility. Gandhi himself signed this page on the following day, giving the date also, August the 27th, 1935. Two hours after our arrival, my companions and I were summoned to lunch. The Mahatma was already seated under the arcade of the ashram porch across the courtyard from his study. About twenty-five barefooted satyagrahis were squatting before brass cups and plates. A community chorus of prayer, then a meal served from large brass pots containing chapatis, whole wheat unleavened bread, sprinkled with ghee, talsari, boiled and diced vegetables, and a lemon jam. The Mahatma ate chapatis, boiled beets, some raw vegetables and oranges. On the side of his plate was a large lump of very bitter neem leaves, a notable blood cleanser. With a spoon he separated a portion and placed it on my dish. I bolted it down with water, remembering my childhood days when mother had forced me to swallow the unpleasant dose. Gandhi, however, was eating the neem paste bit by bit, without a distaste. In this trifling incident, I noted the Mahatma's ability to detach his mind from the senses at will. I recalled a much-publicized appendectomy performed on him some years ago. Refusing anaesthetics, the saint had chatted cheerfully with his devotees throughout the operation, his calm smile revealing his unawareness of pain.
the afternoon brought me an opportunity for a chat with Gandhi's noted disciple, daughter of an English admiral, Miss Madeline Slade, now called Mira Ben. Her strong, calm face lit with enthusiasm as she told me, in flawless Hindi, of her daily activities. Rural reconstruction work is rewarding. A group of us go every morning at five o'clock to serve the nearby villagers and teach them simple hygiene. We make it a point to clean their latrines and thatched mud huts. The villagers are illiterate. They cannot be educated except by example, she laughed gaily. I looked in admiration at this high-born Englishwoman whose true Christian humility enables her to do the scavengering work usually performed only by untouchables. I came to India in 1925, she told me. In this land, I feel that I have come back home. Now I would never be willing to return to my old life and old interests. We discussed America for a while. I'm always pleased and amazed, she said, to see the deep interest in spiritual subjects shown by many of the Americans who visit India. Mirabhan's hands were soon busy at a charka, spinning wheel. Owing to the Mahatma's efforts, charkas are now omnipresent in rural India. Gandhi has sound economic and cultural reasons for encouraging the revival of cottage industries, but he does not counsel a fanatical repudiation of all modern progress. Machinery, trains, automobiles, the telegraph have played important parts in his own colossal life. Fifty years of public service, in prison and out, wrestling daily with practical details and harsh realities in the political world, have only increased his balance, open-mindedness, sanity and humorous appreciation of the quaint human spectacle. Our trio enjoyed a six o'clock supper as guests of Baba Sahib Deshmukh. The 7 p.m. prayer hour found us back at Maganwadi Ashram, climbing to the roof, where thirty satyagrahis were grouped in a semicircle around Gandhi. He was squatting on a straw mat, an ancient pocket watch propped up before him. The fading sun cast a last gleam over the palms and banyans. The hum of night and the crickets had started. The atmosphere was serenity itself. I was enraptured. A solemn chant led by Mr. Desai, with responses from the group, then a Gita reading. The Mahatma motioned me to give the concluding prayer. Such divine unison of thought and aspiration, a memory forever, the Warda rooftop meditation under the early stars. Punctually at eight o'clock, Gandhi ended his silence. The Herculean labours of his life require him to apportion his time minutely. Welcome, Swamiji. The Mahatma's greeting this time was not via paper. We had just descended from the roof to his writing room. Simply furnished with square mats, no chairs, a low desk with books, papers and a few ordinary pens, not fountain pens, a nondescript clock ticked in a corner, an all-pervasive aura of peace and devotion. Gandhi was bestowing one of his captivating, cavernous, almost toothless smiles. Years ago, he explained, I started my weekly observance of a day of silence as a means for gaining time to look after my correspondence. But now those twenty-four hours have become a vital spiritual need. A periodical decree of silence is not a torture, but a blessing. I agreed wholeheartedly.
The Mahatma questioned me about America and Europe. We discussed India and world conditions. Mahadev, Gandhi said, as Mr. Desai entered the room, please make arrangements at town hall for Swamiji to speak there on yoga tomorrow night. As I was bidding the Mahatma good night, he considerately handed me a bottle of citronella oil. The Warda mosquitoes don't know a thing about Ahimsa Swamiji, he said, laughing. The following morning, our little group breakfasted early on whole wheat porridge with molasses and milk. At 10.30, we were called to the ashram porch for lunch with Gandhi and the Chachagrahis. Today, the menu included brown rice, a new selection of vegetables and cardamom seeds. Noon found me strolling about the ashram grounds, onto the grazing land of a few imperturbable cows. The protection of cows is a passion with Gandhi. The cow to me means the entire subhuman world, extending man's sympathies beyond his own species, the Mahatma has explained. Man through the cow is enjoined to realize his identity with all that lives. Why the ancient rishis selected the cow for apotheosis is obvious to me. The cow in India was the best comparison. She was the giver of plenty. Not only did she give milk, but she also made agriculture possible. The cow is a poem of pity. One reads pity in the gentle animal. She is the second mother to millions of mankind. Protection of the cow means protection of the whole dumb creation of God. The appeal of the lower order of creation is all the more forceful because it is speechless. Certain daily rituals are enjoined on the Orthodox Hindu. One is Bhuta Yagya, an offering of food to the animal kingdom. This ceremony symbolizes man's realization of his obligations to less evolved forms of creation, instinctively tied to body identification, a delusion that afflicts man also, but lacking the liberating quality of reason peculiar to humanity. Bhuta Yagya thus reinforces man's readiness to succor the weak, as man in turn is comforted by countless solicitudes of higher unseen beings. Humanity is also under bond for rejuvenating gifts of nature, prodigal in earth, sea and sky. The evolutionary barrier of incommunicability among nature, animals, man and astral angels is surmounted by daily yagyas, rituals of silent love. Two other daily yagyas are Pitri and Nri. Pitri yagya is an offering of oblations to ancestors a symbol of man's acknowledgement of his debt to past generations, whose store of wisdom illuminates humanity today. Nriyagya is an offering of food to strangers or the poor, a symbol of the present responsibilities of man, his duties to contemporaries. In the early afternoon, I fulfilled a neighbouring Nriyagya by a visit to Gandhi's ashram for little girls. Mr. Wright accompanied me on the ten-minute drive, Tiny, young, flower-like faces atop long-stemmed, colourful saris. At the end of a brief talk in Hindi that I was giving outdoors, the skies unloosed a sudden downpour. Laughing, Mr. Wright and I climbed aboard the car and sped back to Maganwadi amid sheets of driving silver. Such tropical intensity and splash. Re-entering the guesthouse, 
I was struck anew by the stark simplicity and evidences of self-sacrifice which are everywhere present. The Gandhi vow of non-possession came early in his married life, renouncing an extensive legal practice which had been yielding him an annual income of more than $20,000. The Mahatma dispersed all his wealth to the poor. Sri Yukteswar used to poke gentle fun at the commonly inadequate conceptions of renunciation. A beggar cannot renounce wealth, Master would say. If a man laments, my business has failed, my wife has left me, I will renounce all and enter a monastery, to what worldly sacrifice is he referring? He did not renounce wealth and love, they renounced him. Saints, like Gandhi, on the other hand, have made not only tangible material sacrifices, but also the more difficult renunciation of selfish motive and private goal, merging their inmost being in the stream of humanity as a whole. The Mahatma's remarkable wife, Kastubai, did not object when he failed to set aside any part of his wealth for the use of her and their children. Married in early youth, Gandhi and his wife took a vow of celibacy after the birth of four sons. A tranquil heroine in the intense drama that has been their life together, Kasturbai has followed her husband to prison, shared his three-week fasts, and fully borne her share of his endless responsibilities. She has paid Gandhi the following tribute. I thank you for having had the privilege of being your lifelong companion and helpmate. I thank you for the most perfect marriage in the world based on brahmacharya, self-control, and not on sex. I thank you for having considered me your equal in your life work for India. I thank you for not being one of those husbands who spend their time in gambling, racing, women, wine and song, tiring of their wives and children as a little boy quickly tires of his childhood toys. How thankful I am that you are not one of those husbands who devote their time to growing rich on the exploitation of the labour of others. How thankful I am that you put God and country before bribes, that you have the courage of your convictions and a complete and implicit faith in God. How thankful I am for a husband who put God and his country before me. I am grateful to you for your tolerance of me and of my shortcomings of youth, when I grumbled and rebelled against the change you made in our mode of living, from so much to so little. As a young child, I lived in your parents' home. Your mother was a great and good woman. She trained me, taught me how to be a brave, courageous wife, and how to keep the love and respect of her son, my future husband. As the years passed, and you became India's most beloved leader, I had none of the fears that beset the wife who may be cast aside when her husband has climbed the ladder of success as so often happens in other countries. I knew that death would still find us, husband and wife. For years, Kastubai performed the duties of treasurer of the public funds, which the idolized Mahatma is able to raise by millions. Many humorous stories are told in Indian homes to the effect that husbands are nervous about their wives wearing any jewellery to a Gandhi meeting. The Mahatma's magical tongue pleading for the downtrodden, charms the golden bracelets and diamond necklaces right off the arms and necks of the wealthy into the collection basket. One day, the public treasurer, 
Kastrubai, could not account for a disbursement of four rupees. Gandhi duly published an auditing in which he inexorably pointed out his wife's four-rupee discrepancy. I had often told this story before classes of my American students. One evening, a woman in the hall had given an outraged gasp. Mahatma or no Mahatma, she had cried, if he were my husband, I would have given him a black eye for such an unnecessary public insult. After some good-humoured banter had passed between us on the subject of American wives and Hindu wives, I had gone on to a fuller explanation. Mrs. Gandhi considers the Mahatma not as her husband, but as her guru, one who has the right to discipline her for even insignificant errors, I had pointed out. Sometime after Kastubai had been publicly rebuked, Gandhi was sentenced to prison on a political charge. As he was calmly bidding farewell to his wife, she fell at his feet. Master, she said humbly, if I have ever offended you, please forgive me. At three o'clock that afternoon in Warda, I betook myself by previous appointment to the writing room of the saint who had been able to make an unflinching disciple out of his own wife. A rare miracle. Gandhi looked up with his unforgettable smile. Mahatma Ji, I said, as I squatted beside him on the uncushioned mat, please tell me your definition of ahimsa. The avoidance of harm to any living creature in thought or deed. Beautiful ideal, but the world will always ask, may one not kill a cobra to protect a child or oneself? I could not kill a cobra without violating two of my vows, fearlessness and non-killing. I would rather try inwardly to calm the snake by vibrations of love. I cannot possibly lower my standards to suit my circumstances. With his charming candour, he added, I must confess that I could not serenely carry on this conversation were I faced by a cobra. I remarked on several very recent Western books on diet which lay on his desk. Yes, diet is important in the Satyagraha movement, as everywhere else, he said with a chuckle, because I advocate complete continence for Satyagrahis, I am always trying to find out the best diet for the celibate. One must conquer the palate before he can control the procreative instinct. Semi-starvation or unbalanced diets are not the answer. After overcoming the inward greed for food, a satyagrahi must continue to follow a rational vegetarian diet with all necessary vitamins, minerals, calories and so forth. By inward and outward wisdom in regard to eating, the satyagrahi's sexual fluid is easily turned into vital energy for the whole body. The Mahatma and I compared our knowledge of good meat substitutes. The avocado is excellent, I said. There are numerous avocado groves near my center in California. Gandhi's face lit with interest. I wonder if they will grow at Vada. The satyagrahis would appreciate a new food. I will be sure to send some avocado plants from Los Angeles to Vada, I added. Eggs are a high-protein food. Are they forbidden to satyagrahis? Not unfertilized eggs, the Mahatma laughed reminiscently. For years, I would not countenance their use. Even now, I personally do not eat them. One of my daughters-in-law was once dying of malnutrition. Her doctors insisted on eggs. I would not agree. 
and advised him to give her some egg substitute. Gandhiji, the doctor said, unfertilized eggs contain no life sperm, no killing is involved. I then gladly gave permission for my daughter-in-law to eat eggs. She was soon restored to health. On the previous night, Gandhi had expressed a wish to receive the Kriya Yoga of Lahiri Mahashai. I was touched by the Mahatma's open-mindedness and spirit of inquiry. He is childlike in his divine quest, revealing that pure receptivity which Jesus praised in children. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. The hour for my promised instruction had arrived. Several Satyagrahis now entered the room, Mr. Desai, Dr. Pingali, and a few others who desired the Kriya technique. I first taught the little class the physical Yogoda exercises. The body is visualized as divided into twenty parts. The will directs energy in turn to each section. Soon everyone was vibrating before me like a human motor. It was easy to observe the rippling effect on Gandhi's twenty body parts, at nearly all times completely exposed to view. Though very thin, he is not unpleasingly so. The skin of his body is smooth and unwrinkled. Later, I initiated the group into the liberating technique of Kriya Yoga. The Mahatma has reverently studied all world religions, the Jain scriptures, the biblical New Testament, and the sociological writings of Tolstoy are the three main sources of Gandhi's non-violence convictions. He has stated his credo thus, I believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Zend Avesta to be as divinely inspired as the Vedas. I believe in the institution of gurus, but in this age millions must go without a guru, because it is a rare thing to find a combination of perfect purity and perfect learning. But one need not despair of ever knowing the truth of one's religion, because the fundamentals of Hinduism, as of every great religion, are unchangeable and easily understood. I believe, like every Hindu, in God and His oneness, in rebirth and salvation. I can no more describe my feelings for Hinduism than for my own wife. She moves me as no other woman in the world can. Not that she has no faults. I dare say she has many more than I see myself. But the feeling of an indissoluble bond is there. Even so, I feel for and about Hinduism with all its faults and limitations. Nothing delights me so much as the music of the Gita or the Ramayana by Tulsidas. When I fancied I was taking my last breath, the Gita was my solace. Hinduism is not an exclusive religion. In it there is room for the worship of all the prophets of the world. Hinduism is not a missionary religion in the ordinary sense of the term. It has no doubt absorbed many tribes in its fold, but this absorption has been of an evolutionary, imperceptible character. Hinduism tells each man to worship God according to his own faith or dharma, and so lives at peace with all religions. Of Christ, Gandhi has written, I am sure that if he were living here now among men, 
He would bless the lives of many who perhaps have never even heard his name. Just as it is written, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father. In the lesson of his own life, Jesus gave humanity the magnificent purpose and the single objective toward which we all ought to aspire. I believe that he belongs not solely to Christianity, but to the entire world, to all lands and races. On my last evening at Wada, I addressed the meeting which had been called by Mr. Desai in Town Hall. The room was thronged to the window sills with about four hundred persons assembled to hear the talk on yoga. I first spoke in Hindi, then in English. Our little group returned to the ashram in time for a good night glimpse of the Mahatma, deep in peace and correspondence. Night was still lingering when I rose at five a.m. Village life was already stirring. First a bullock cart by the ashram gates, then a peasant with his huge burden balanced precariously on his head. After breakfast, our trio sought out Gandhi for farewell pranams. The saint rises at four o'clock for his morning prayer. Mahatmaji, goodbye. I knelt to touch his feet. India is safe in your keeping. Years have rolled by since the Vada idyll. The earth, oceans and skies have darkened with a world at war. Alone among great leaders, Gandhi has offered a practical, non-violent alternative to armed might. To redress grievances and remove injustices, the Mahatma has employed non-violent means, which again and again have proved their effectiveness. He states his doctrine in these words. I have found that life persists in the midst of destruction. Therefore, there must be a higher law than that of destruction. Only under that law would well-ordered society be intelligible and life worth living. If that is the law of life, we must work it out in daily existence. Wherever there are wars, wherever we are confronted with an opponent, conquer by love. I have found that the certain law of love has answered in my own life as the law of destruction has never done. In India we have had an ocular demonstration of the operation of this law on the widest scale possible. I don't claim that non-violence has penetrated the 360 million people in India, but I do claim it has penetrated deeper than any other doctrine in an incredibly short time. It takes a fairly strenuous course of training to attain a mental state of non-violence. It is a disciplined life like the life of a soldier. The perfect state is reached only when the mind, body and speech are in proper coordination. Every problem would lend itself to solution if we determined to make the law of truth and non-violence the law of life. The grim march of world political events points inexorably to the truth that without spiritual vision the people perish. Science, if not religion, has awakened in humanity a dim sense of the insecurity and even insubstantiality of all material things. Where indeed may man go now, if not to his source and origin, the spirit within him? Consulting history, one may reasonably state that man's problems have not been solved by the use of brute force. 
World War I produced an earth-chilling snowball of dread karma that swelled into World War II. Only the warmth of brotherhood can melt the present colossal snowball of sanguinary karma that may otherwise grow into World War III. Unholy 20th Century Trinity Use of jungle logic instead of human reason in settling disputes will restore the earth to a jungle. If not brothers in life, then brothers in violent death. It was not for such ignominy that God lovingly permitted man to discover the release of atomic energies. War and crime never pay. The billions of dollars that went up in the smoke of explosive nothingness would have been sufficient to have made a new world, one almost free from disease and completely free from poverty. Not an earth of fear, chaos, famine, pestilence, the dance macabre, but one broad land of peace, prosperity and widening knowledge. The non-violent voice of Gandhi appeals to man's highest conscience. Let nations ally themselves no longer with death but with life, not with destruction but with construction, not with hate but with the creative miracles of love. One should forgive under any injury, says the Mahabharata. It hath been said that the continuation of the species is due to man's being forgiving. Forgiveness is holiness. By forgiveness, the universe is held together. Forgiveness is the might of the mighty. Forgiveness is sacrifice. Forgiveness is quiet of mind. Forgiveness and gentleness are the qualities of the self-possessed. They represent eternal virtue. Non-violence is the natural outgrowth of the law of forgiveness and love. If loss of life becomes necessary in a righteous battle, Gandhi proclaims, one should be prepared, like Jesus, to shed his own, not others' blood. Eventually, there will be less blood spilt in the world. Epics shall someday be written on the Indian Satyagrahis, who withstood hate with love, violence with non-violence, who allow themselves to be mercilessly slaughtered rather than bear arms. The result, on certain historic occasions, was that opponents threw down their guns and fled, shamed, shaken to their depths by the sight of men who valued the lives of others above their own. I would wait, if need be for ages, Gandhi says, rather than seek the freedom of my country through bloody means. The Bible warns us, all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. The Mahatma has written, I call myself a nationalist, but my nationalism is as broad as the universe. It includes in its sweep all the nations of the earth. My nationalism includes the well-being of the whole world. I do not want my India to rise on the ashes of other nations. I do not want India to exploit a single human being. I want India to be strong in order that she can infect the other nations also with her strength. Not so with a single nation in Europe today. They do not give strength to the others. President Wilson mentioned his beautiful 14 points, but said, After all, if this endeavour of ours to arrive at peace fails, we have our armaments to fall back upon. 
I want to reverse that position, and I say, our armaments have failed already. Let us now be in search of something new. Let us try the force of love and God, which is truth. When we've got that, we shall want nothing else. By the Mahatma's training of thousands of true Satyagrahis, those who have taken the eleven rigorous vows mentioned in the first part of this chapter, who in turn spread the message, by patiently educating the Indian masses to understand the spiritual and eventually material benefits of non-violence, by arming his people with non-violent weapons, non-cooperation with injustice, the willingness to endure indignities, prison, death itself rather than resort to arms, by enlisting world sympathy through countless examples of heroic martyrdom among Satyagrahis, Gandhi has dramatically portrayed the practical nature of non-violence, its solemn power to settle disputes without war. Gandhi has already won through non-violent means a greater number of political concessions for his land than any other leader of a country has ever won except through bullets. Non-violent methods for eradication of all wrongs and evils have been strikingly applied not only in the political arena but in the delicate and complicated field of Indian social reform. Gandhi and his followers have removed many long-standing feuds between Hindus and Mohammedans. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims look to the Mahatma as their leader. The untouchables have found in him their fearless and triumphant champion. If there be a rebirth in store for me, Gandhi wrote, I wish to be born a pariah in the midst of pariahs, because thereby I will be able to render them more effective service. The Mahatma is indeed a great soul, but it was illiterate millions who had the discernment to bestow the title. This gentle prophet is honoured in his own land. The lowly peasant has been able to rise to Gandhi's high challenge. The Mahatma wholeheartedly believes in the inherent nobility of man. The inevitable failures have never disillusioned him. Even if the opponent plays him false twenty times, he writes, the Satyagrahi is ready to trust him the twenty-first time, for an implicit trust in human nature is the very essence of the creed. Mahatmaji, you are an exceptional man. You must not expect the world to act as you do. A critic once made this observation. It is curious how we delude ourselves, fancying that the body can be improved, but that it is impossible to evoke the hidden powers of the soul, Gandhi replied. I am engaged in trying to show that if I have any of those powers, I am as frail a mortal as any of us, and that I never had anything extraordinary about me, nor have I now. I am a simple individual, liable to err like any other fellow mortal. I own, however, that I have enough humility to confess my errors and to retrace my steps. I own that I have an immovable faith in God and His goodness, and an unconsumable passion for truth and love. But is that not what every person has latent in him? He added, if we may make new discoveries and inventions in the phenomenal world, must we declare our bankruptcy in the spiritual domain? Is it impossible to multiply the exceptions so as to make them the rule? Must man always be brute first, and man after, if at all? 
Americans may well remember with pride the successful non-violence experiment of William Penn in founding his 17th century colony in Pennsylvania. There were no forts, no soldiers, no militia, even no arms. Amidst the savage frontier wars and the butcheries that went on between the new settlers and the Red Indians, the Quakers of Pennsylvania alone remained unmolested. Others were slain, others were massacred, but they were safe. Not a Quaker woman suffered assault, not a Quaker child was slain, not a Quaker man was tortured. When the Quakers were finally forced to give up the government of the state, war broke out and some Pennsylvanians were killed, but only three Quakers were killed, three who had so far fallen from their faith as to carry weapons of defence. Resort to force in the Great War failed to bring tranquillity, Franklin D. Roosevelt pointed out. Victory and defeat were alike sterile. That lesson the world should have learned. The more weapons of violence, the more misery to mankind, Lao Tzu taught. The triumph of violence ends in a festival of mourning. I am fighting for nothing less than world peace, Gandhi has declared. If the Indian movement is carried to success on a non-violent satyagraha basis, it will give a new meaning to patriotism and, if I may say so, in all humility, to life itself. Before the West dismisses Gandhi's program as one of an impractical dreamer, let it first reflect on a definition of Satyagraha by the Master of Galilee. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil with evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Gandhi's epoch has extended, with the beautiful precision of cosmic timing, into a century already desolated and devastated by two world wars. A divine handwriting appears on the granite wall of his life, a warning against the further shedding of blood among brothers. He was, in the true sense, the father of the nation, and a madman has slain him. Millions and millions are mourning because the light has gone out. The light that shone in this land was no ordinary light. For a thousand years, that light will be seen in this country, and the world will see it. So spoke Prime Minister of India, Jawaharlal Nehru, shortly after Mahatma Gandhi had been assassinated in New Delhi on January the 30th, 1948. Five months earlier, India had peacefully achieved her national independence. The work of the 78-year-old Gandhi was done. He realized that his hour was nigh. Abba, bring me all the important papers, he said to his grandniece on the morning of the tragedy. I must reply today. Tomorrow may never be. In numerous passages of his writings also, Gandhi gave intimations of his final destiny. As the dying Mahatma sank slowly to the ground, three bullets in his frail and fast-worn body, 
He lifted his hands in the traditional Hindu gesture of greeting, silently bestowing his forgiveness. Innocent artist as he was in all the ways of his life, Gandhi became a supreme artist at the moment of his death. All the sacrifices of his selfless life had made possible that final loving gesture. Generations to come, it may be, Albert Einstein wrote in a tribute to the Mahatma, will scarcely believe that such a one as this, ever in flesh and blood, walked upon the earth. A dispatch from the Vatican in Rome said, The assassination caused great sorrow here. Gandhi is mourned as an apostle of Christian virtues. Fraught with symbolic meaning are the lives of all great ones who come to earth for the accomplishment of a specific righteousness. Gandhi's dramatic death in the cause of Indian unity has highlighted his message to a world torn in every continent with disunity. That message he has stated in prophetic words, Non-violence has come among men, and it will live. It is the harbinger of the peace of the world. Chapter 45 The Bengali Joy-Permeated Mother Sir, please do not leave India without a glimpse of Nirmala Devi. Her sanctity is intense. She is known far and wide as Ananda Moi Ma, Joy-Permeated Mother. My niece, Amiyo Bos, gazed at me earnestly. Of course, I want very much to see the woman saint. I added, I have read of her advanced state of God-realization. A little article about her appeared years ago in East-West. I have met her, Amiyo went on. She recently visited my own small town of Jamshadpur. At the entreaty of a disciple, Ananda Moima went to the home of a dying man. She stood by his bedside. As her hand touched his forehead, his death rattle ceased. The disease vanished at once, to the man's glad astonishment. He was well. A few days later, I heard that the blissful mother was staying at the home of a disciple in the Bawanipur section of Calcutta. Mr. Wright and I set out immediately for my father's Calcutta home. As the Ford neared the Bawanipur house, my companion and I observed an unusual street scene. Ananda Moima was standing in an open-topped automobile, blessing a throng of about one hundred disciples. She was evidently on the point of departure. Mr. Wright parked the Ford some distance away and accompanied me on foot towards the quiet assemblage. The woman saint glanced in our direction. She alit from her car and walked towards us. Father, you have come. With these fervent words in Bengali, she put her arm around my neck and her head on my shoulder. Mr. Wright, to whom I had just remarked that I did not know the saint, was hugely enjoying this extraordinary demonstration of welcome. The eyes of the hundred shellers were also fixed with some surprise on the affectionate tableau. I had instantly seen that the saint was in a high state of samadhi. Oblivious to her outward garb as a woman, she knew herself as the changeless soul. From that plane she was joyously greeting another devotee of God. She led me by the hand into her automobile. 
Ananda, Moi, Ma, I am delaying your journey, I protested. Father, I am meeting you for the first time in this life after ages, she said. Please do not leave yet. We sat together in the rear seats of the car. The blissful mother soon entered the immobile ecstatic state. Her beautiful eyes glanced heavenward and, half-opened, became stilled, gazing into the near-far inner Elysium. The disciples chanted gently, Victory to Mother Divine. I had found many men of God-realization in India, but never before had I met such an exalted woman saint. Her gentle face was burnished with the ineffable joy that had given her the name of Blissful Mother. Long black tresses lay loosely behind her unveiled head. A red dot of sandalwood paste on her forehead symbolized the spiritual eye, ever open within her. Tiny face, tiny hands, tiny feet, a contrast to her spiritual magnitude. I put some questions to a nearby woman, Chella, while Ananda Moima remained entranced. The blissful mother travels widely in India, in many parts she has hundreds of disciples, the Chella told me. Her courageous efforts have brought about many desirable social reforms. Although a Brahmin, the saint recognizes no caste distinctions. A group of us always travels with her, looking after her comforts. We have to mother her. She takes no notice of her body. If no one gave her food, she would not eat or make any inquiries. Even when meals are placed before her, she does not touch them. To prevent her disappearance from this world, we disciples feed her with our own hands. For days together she often stays in the divine trance, scarcely breathing, her eyes unwinking. One of her chief disciples is her husband, Bholanath. Many years ago, soon after their marriage, he took the vow of silence. The chela pointed to a broad-shouldered, fine-featured man with long hair and a hoary beard. He was standing quietly in the midst of the gathering, his hands folded and a disciple's reverential attitude. Refreshed by her dip in the infinite, Ananda Moima was now focusing her consciousness on the material world. Father, please tell me where you stay. Her voice was clear and melodious. At present, in Calcutta or Ranchi, but soon I shall be returning to America. America? Yes. An Indian woman saint would be sincerely appreciated there by spiritual seekers. Would you like to go? If Father can take me, I will go. This reply caused her nearby disciples to start in alarm. Twenty or more of us always travel with the blissful mother, one of them told me firmly. We could not live without her. Wherever she goes, we must go. Reluctantly, I abandoned the plan, as possessing an impractical feature of spontaneous enlargement. Please, come at least to Ranchi with your devotees, I said on taking leave of the saint. As a divine child yourself, you will enjoy the little ones in my school. Whenever Father takes me, I will gladly go. A short time later, the Ranchi Vidyalaya was in gala array for the saint's promised visit. The youngsters 
looked forward to any day of festivity, no lessons, hours of music, and a feast for the climax. Victory! Ananda Moima Kijai! This reiterated chant from scores of enthusiastic little throats greeted the saint's party as it entered the school gates. Showers of marigolds, tinkle of cymbals, lusty blowing of conch shells, and beat of the miridanga drum. The blissful mother wandered smilingly over the sunny Vigilaya grounds, ever carrying within her heart the portable paradise. It is beautiful here, Ananda Moima said graciously as I led her into the main building. She seated herself with a childlike smile by my side. The closest of dear friends she made one feel, yet an aura of remoteness was ever around her, the paradoxical isolation of omnipresence. Please tell me something of your life. Father knows all about it. Why repeat it? She evidently felt that the factual history of one short incarnation was beneath notice. I laughed, gently repeating my request. Father, there is little to tell. She spread her graceful hands in a deprecatory gesture. My consciousness has never associated itself with this temporary body. Before I came on this earth, Father, I was the same. As a little girl, I was the same. I grew into womanhood, still, I was the same. When the family in which I had been born made arrangements to have this body married, I was the same. And Father, in front of you now, I am the same. Ever afterward, though the dance of creation change around me in the hall of eternity, I shall be the same. Ananda Moima sank into a deep meditative state. Her form was statue still. She had fled to her ever-calling kingdom. The dark pools of her eyes appeared lifeless and glassy. This expression is often present when saints remove their consciousness from the physical body, which is then hardly more than a piece of soulless clay. We sat together for an hour in the ecstatic trance. She returned to this world with a gay little laugh. Please, Ananda Moimar, I said, come with me to the garden. Mr. Wright will take some pictures. Of course, Father, your will is my will. Her glorious eyes retained an unchanging divine luster as she posed for many photographs. Time for the feast. Ananda Moimar squatted on her blanket seat, a disciple at her elbow to feed her. Like an infant, the saint obediently swallowed the food after the cella had brought it to her lips. It was plain that the blissful mother did not recognize any difference between curries and sweetmeats. As dusk approached, the saint left with her party amidst a shower of rose petals, her hands raised in blessing on the little lads. Their faces shone with the affection she had effortlessly awakened. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, Christ has proclaimed. This is the first commandment. Casting aside every inferior attachment, Ananda Moima offers her sole allegiance to the Lord, not by hair-splitting distinctions of scholars, but by the sure logic of faith. The childlike saint has solved the only problem in human life, establishment of unity with God. Man has forgotten this stark simplicity, 
now befogged by a million issues. Refusing a monotheistic love to the Creator, nations try to disguise their infidelity by punctilious respect before the outward shrines of charity. These humanitarian gestures are virtuous because for a moment they divert man's attention from himself. But they do not free him from his prime responsibility in life, referred to by Jesus as the first commandment. The uplifting obligation to love God is assumed with man's earliest breath of air, freely bestowed by his only benefactor. On one other occasion, after her visit to the Ranchi school, I had opportunity to see Ananda Moima. She stood with a group some months later on the Sedampore station platform, waiting for the train. Father, I am going to the Himalayas, she told me. Some kind persons have built for us a hermitage in Dera Dun. As she boarded the train, I marveled to see that whether amidst a crowd, on a train, feasting or sitting in silence, her eyes never looked away from God. Within me, I still hear her voice, an echo of measureless sweetness. Behold, now and always, one with the Eternal, I am ever the same. Chapter 46 The Woman Yogi Who Never Eats Sir, whither are we bound this morning? Mr. Wright was driving the Ford. He took his eyes off the road long enough to gaze at me with a questioning twinkle. From day to day he seldom knew what part of Bengal he would be discovering next. God willing, I replied devoutly, we are on our way to see an eighth wonder of the world a woman saint whose diet is thin air. Repetition of wonders after Theresa Neumann, but Mr. Wright laughed eagerly just the same. He even accelerated the speed of the car. More extraordinary grist for his travel diary. Not one of an average tourist, that. The ranchy school had just been left behind us. We had risen before the sun. Besides my secretary and me, Three Bengali friends were in the party. We drank in the exhilarating air, the natural wine of the morning. Our driver guided the car warily among the early peasants and the two-wheeled carts, slowly drawn by yoked, hump-shouldered bullocks, inclined to dispute the road with a honking interloper. Sir, we would like to know more of the fasting saint. Her name is Giribala, I informed my companions. I first heard about her years ago from a scholarly gentleman, Stiti Lal Nundi. He often came to the Garpar Road home to tutor my brother Bishnu. I know Giribal well, Stiti Babu told me. She employs a certain yoga technique that enables her to live without eating. I was her close neighbour in Nawabganj, near Ichapur, in northern Bengal. I made it a point to watch her closely. Never did I find evidence that she was either taking food or drink. My interest finally mounted so high that I approached the Maharaja of Bodhvan and asked him to conduct an investigation. Astounded at the story, he invited her to his palace. She agreed to a test and lived for two months, locked up in a small section of his home. Later she returned for a palace visit of twenty days, and then for a third test of fifteen days. 
the Maharaja himself told me that these three rigorous scrutinies had convinced him beyond doubt of her non-eating state. This story of Sita Babu's has remained in my mind for over twenty-five years, I concluded. Sometimes, in America, I wondered if the river of time would not swallow the yogini before I could meet her. She must be quite aged now. I do not even know where or if she lives. But in a few hours we shall reach Perulia. Her brother has a home there. By ten-thirty, our little group was conversing with the brother, Lambordade, a lawyer of Perulia. Yes, my sister is living. She sometimes stays with me here, but at present she's at our family home in Biur. Lambadar Babu glanced doubtfully at the ford. I hardly think, Swamiji, that any automobile has ever penetrated into the interior as far as Biur. It might be best if you all resign yourselves to the jolts of a bullock cart. As one voice, our party pledged loyalty to the pride of Detroit. The Ford comes from America, I told the lawyer. It will be a shame to deprive it of an opportunity to get acquainted with the heart of Bengal. May Ganesh go with you, Lambador Babu said, laughing. He added courteously, If you ever get there, I'm sure Giribala will be glad to see you. She's approaching her seventies, but continues in excellent health. Please tell me, sir, if it is absolutely true that she eats nothing. I looked directly into his eyes, those tell-tale windows of the mind. It is true. His gaze was open and honourable. In more than five decades, I have never seen her eat a morsel. If the world suddenly came to an end, I could not be more astonished than by the sight of my sisters taking food. We chuckled together over the improbability of these two cosmic events. End of Disc 14 Chapter 46 continues on Disc 15